off. This year, on May 1st, immigrant rights, racial justice, and workers' rights are coming together in Chicago to rally for legalization for all, an end to police crimes, and justice for essential workers. Now, Chicago has long been the center of International Workers' Day, which is on May 1st. From 2006, when it was the center of a demonstration of over a million people for immigrant rights, or 1886, the first May Day, as the fight for an eight-hour workday turned violent. This brings up a lot of interesting things to discuss. The historic hostility between police and labor, the black unions that have developed because white unions wouldn't allow black workers in or would not treat them as equals. But seeing this alliance in Chicago, I want to talk about interracial unions. Because often when discussing labor and unionizing, race and ethnic divisions have been used to divide workers and drive wages down. But there have been times in American history when workers put that aside and came together and created change beyond just economic and workplace changes. That's why this episode I talked to Professor Peter Cole of Western Illinois University about two very strong examples of this one on each coast, and both involving dock workers. So the first one is on the East Coast, and it starts with the industrial workers of the world. Set the scene for us. They were formed in a time, 1905, that in many ways was quite similar to our times. In both these times, there is extreme inequality, where corporations and the wealthiest have tremendous power, but also when unions, which are generally the most powerful tool that workers have to flex their muscle and increase their wealth, when unions were very weak. In addition to that, both in 1905 and 2021, so now many unions in the past were deeply racist. And so most white workers and most unions that represented white workers would not have tolerated black members or treated them as, quote, second class. And as you noted, that was one of the many reasons that employers had greater power, because divide and conquer is one of the most simple and effective ways to weaken your opponent. So if employers and employees have different interests, one literally wants to earn more, one literally wants to pay the other less, then how do you overcome that? For the Industrial Workers of the World, which was founded in Chicago, where I'm talking to you from, in 1905, the IWW rejected racism, sexism, and rejected xenophobia, which is to say that they organized Black people, women, and immigrants in addition to white men, because they understood that. How did that happen? What was the ideology behind the IWW doing something so different than other labor movements? The short version is that they were anti-capitalist, which is to say they were socialists. And so because they believed that the economic system could not be reformed, because they believed the economic system was inherently unfair, not just to people of color, but actually to the great majority, that the system never could be improved in a radical way, it had to be destroyed, not necessarily through a violent means, But capitalism was never going to guarantee equality. And so these people said, not only do we not believe that capitalism can work, we also actually don't believe that nationalism can work. That's why they took the name the Industrial Workers of the World, even though almost all of its members and founders were Americans. They believed that capitalism was the problem, but also that capitalism was global, right? And so that you couldn't even achieve socialism in one country, that you actually needed to do this worldwide There were non-Americans at their founding convention, um, some people from Canada, some people from Spain, some people from a few other countries. There are also some immigrants present. And they believe that nationalism, like racism, like xenophobia, actually was ultimately divisive. And that if it's us versus them, and, and most of us are us, 
let them have the power that you have to overcome a whole bunch of your hangups. So their ideology was simultaneously socialist and internationalist. Therefore, in their very first part of their constitution said, you can join regardless of race, creed, or color. So that's what they said on paper. But in practice, was the IWW actually organizing that way? The IWW immediately started to organize because they understood that essentially workers' greatest power was as more of us, the stronger we are. One of their key principles in action is just the word solidarity, captured also in their motto, an injury to one is an injury to all. The IWW did start to organize in many different places against the grain. So for example, very early on, IWW members started to organize Asian farm workers. This was in a time when Chinese and Japanese people were bitterly hated. And in fact, laws have been passed that legally prevented Japanese and Chinese people from becoming citizens of the United States. The IWW started to organize very quickly among Mexican-American miners in the West, and then quickly was expanded to Mexico and Canada, and then jumped the water to New Zealand, And they started to organize. They were the first white union to organize Maoris, the indigenous people of New Zealand. And then also within 10 years, it had traveled as far as South Africa, where it was the first white majority union to organize the black African majority. They didn't succeed in organizing many, although they laid some seeds, you could say, that by the 1920s had grown greatly. The IWW crossed industries, oceans and races to organize both white people and people of color, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, and against government repression from the beginning. But there aren't a lot of examples of mass black worker organizing by the IWW, which brings us to Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, which is a city that's really an interesting place, it's a diverse city, as many cities are in the U.S., but it's relatively conservative and relatively less diverse. Although in the early 20th century, it did have the largest black population outside of the South and a very old black population that goes back to the 17th century. But it was a city that, at the turn of the 20th century, was very racist. Du Bois's book, The Philadelphia Negro, which came out in 1899, was all about the way that racism defined how black people experienced Philadelphia, including on the job, where both men and women had very limited prospects. Even though they spoke English and were citizens, which is to say that many Philadelphia employers would hire European immigrants who might not speak English and were not citizens over African-Americans. That was the case, of course, in city after city. It was not unique to Philadelphia. But given the fact that Philadelphia had this rep as being liberal, the truth of the Black experience in Philadelphia was very, very different. That takes us to the docks, where many Black men worked because they didn't have many other options, and so did a lot of immigrants. And employers knew how to keep them divided to get more work while paying them less. So Philadelphia was typical in that it was very diverse, but also, as you said, very divided, especially over race and nationality. The demographics of the dock workers was approximately one-third African-American, one-third Irish and Irish-American, one-third other European immigrants. Very, very diverse. And employers often hired people based on race or ethnicity. The foreman who did the hiring would play workers off each other, including by ethnicity and race and religion, in order to drive wages down. But workers often also had to even pay a bribe to the hiring boss simply to get a job. And often workers worked in segregated gangs, which is to say, if there was five gangs of 20 men, at this time the industry was all male, there might be 20 men in a gang, there might be five gangs working a ship, and you might literally have a black gang, an Irish gang, an Italian gang, a Polish gang, and some other gang. 
And the foreman would play these workers on the job of each other. Hey, look, that Polish gang is working fast in you. What, what are you, not as strong as the Poles? Now, in that sort of scenario, again, the boss wins because in this industry, literally time is money, right? You're getting paid by the hour, but also that ship, which famously has to sail on time because you're paying for renting that space at the dock, you're paying your workers by the hour, et cetera, et cetera. Employers win when productivity goes up. Workers often don't, except if they believe that there's something other than money involved, right? Like, oh, I want to be better than those black guys. We're stronger than them. Luckily, these Philadelphia dock workers had two things. One, they were already IWW members on the waterfront. And one of those wobblies, as they were called, was Ben Fletcher. African-American born in Philadelphia in 1890. And so he's in his early 20s in 1913, when this diverse, diverse workforce of approximately 5,000 men went out on strike in the spring of 1913. There were already IWW activists and locals on the ground. They didn't organize and cause or call the strike, but Fletcher already, as a young black man, had been working on the waterfront. Fletcher was already a wobbly. Fletcher already was an organizer for the IWW. Fletcher already was considered to be a really good speaker, according to newspaper accounts of Fletcher by his peers, right? And so, you know, African-Americans have no reason to trust white people. I'm actually speaking historically, but we might be thinking about now, honestly. But in 1913, it might be a big reach if a union like the IWW says, we are going to organize all people regardless of race and nationality. And some people might say, that sounds good, but I don't believe you. Because in fact, most unions, including the, the mainstream union in this industry, are racist and xenophobic. If actually the, the leader of that effort was an African-American man himself, right, it's actually a little easier to sell. Right. Especially if he's a very convincing speaker and considered also to be very funny as well as very intelligent, although it seems that he never graduated from high school. And so Fletcher is really pivotal. He was widely respected from that moment forward. He shows up in IWW publications, praised in them as early as uh, 1911, 1912. And so what we've got from 1913 for the next almost 10 years is a black led multiracial, multi ethnic union in a time and a place that is deeply racist and xenophobic that was chartered as Local H of the Marine Transport Workers section of the IWW because they divided their union into different industries, which has a logic to it. And the Local H is established in 1913. He's not the only important Black leader in the Local H, and there are also some important white and European immigrant leaders, right? It's a multiracial leadership too. But Fletcher is really, by all accounts, seen as the key. So it took... One black man in leadership, which led to a multiracially led union for workers to realize that rather than just accepting that my lot is better than them over there, if we work together, we can all bring each other up and all have better. But it also definitely helped that Local 8 gained power that employers could neither ignore nor deny. After Local 8 wins its first strike in the spring of 1913, it won raises for its members but it also won essentially what we would call union recognition. This is 22 years before the National Labor Relations Act actually gives workers the right to unionize or strike. And so at that time, employers actually had the right to fire someone simply for breathing or for being in a union or going on strike. Now we have a legal right to strike and a legal right to unionize, even though often the government doesn't really protect us um, and employers regularly abuse those rights. But in 1913, this is before workers had any legal rights to do these things. Why did employers accept this union, this radical, radical, multiracial socialist union? Very simple, power. This union had shut down the port for two weeks, 
forcing great losses on the shipping companies and other related industries. And so they conceded, not because they liked the Wobblies. In fact, the Wobblies were deeply hated by mainstream America, in particular, the employers in the government. However, they couldn't say no, right? They chose to negotiate because they, the alternative was worse at that moment. They never gave up. Employers never gave up trying to destroy the union and after a decade or so did. But they um, conceded because essentially these workers were well organized. The idea that you could have a multiracial force of this sort, working class people, almost unprecedented. And what is incredibly fascinating about this power was that it wasn't just economic power on the job. They also created structural and social change in Philadelphia as an interracial union. So I mentioned that gangs, work gangs, were already segregated. Local aid ended segregation. Rather than have to go to the individual peers in order to potentially get hired or not in the system that was nicknamed the shape-up, that workers were played off each other where you were competing against your fellow workers for a job. Now employers had to call up the union hall and request members, right? Um, we want 100 workers to come to Pier 21 tomorrow at 7 a.m. to unload this product, right? The union dispatches a multiracial, multiethnic workforce, this starts to break down the differences and the potential hatreds that exist within the workers, because maybe you actually buy into these hateful ideologies. Why not? Most of us often do. What do you learn? That Who's your enemy? Maybe the boss is actually really your enemy. Who's going to protect you if that cargo sling breaks and you might die when a whole bunch of cargo falls on your head? The boss is probably not going to jump to your aid. It's probably going to be the other worker who's also at risk, right? In other words, you share much in common. The nature of the work you do, the fact that you work together... The integration of the gangs is really important. I like to point out this is 1913. This is 51 years before the Civil Rights Act of 1964 officially ends segregation in the United States. I call this also integration from below, which is to say that workers from the bottom pushed against the powers that be at the top to force racial equality in a way that simply didn't exist in most workplaces. Workplaces were typically segregated by race as well as sex. They also integrated their leadership ranks, right? They mandated what we might call quotas, where blacks and whites had to be in certain positions in order to ensure representation of the major racial and ethnic groups within the leadership ranks. They had also done that in their initial strike. Every ethnic group on strike had at least one member on the strike negotiating committee. So they promoted racial equality on a scale that was very, very atypical and that wasn't ostensibly what a union is supposed to do, right? A union is supposed to sort of do things we think of wages and hours, those material issues. But the IWW, when it gained power on the Philadelphia waterfront, they also actually moved where they could to institute their vision as much as they might be able. Part of that was the social change in Philadelphia that I mentioned. There's reports of basically there's increased racial harmony in riverfront neighborhoods because you had the largest organization that was very expressively inclusive. Some of this is hard to imagine now, I think, because it is so unusual in sort of uh, these working class districts in Philadelphia in the 19-teens and early 20s. Turns out a lot of the IWW's records have been lost or possibly destroyed by the federal government because there was nothing stopping them from doing that. So we don't know a lot of details of what they were doing day to day, but we do know that they were staying true to the IWW phrase, educate, agitate, organize. Ben Fletcher, in particular, was regularly dispatched to other ports because shipping companies are not operating in one city, right? And so if Philadelphia goes on a strike, shipping companies could move their cargo to Baltimore, right, or New York, and then just sort of move it by rail. They understood this, that uh, having control of a single port 
it's like an island, but eventually the water is going to rise unless you sort of organize the others. So Fletcher would organize in Boston and Providence, where there was actually this interesting group of Portuguese, many of African descent from like Portuguese colonies in the Atlantic Ocean, like the Azores and the Canaries and Cape Verde. Fletcher also organized in Baltimore, which had some black dock workers and Norfolk, Virginia, with some success, but mostly limited success. They also started to organize more workers in related industries. And so they literally just would walk across the street. They often would talk with sailors who would come off ships or, or sort of be boarding ships, right? And so the entire industry, what we now call the supply chain or logistics, they appreciated that the movement of cargo, of goods and finished products or raw materials, that's the key industry, you could argue, of, of global trade and capitalism. So they appreciate that they're in a pivotal industry, even if they're paid very small and even if arguably other people could do the work. Local aid was also constantly fighting and agitating. They understood they had power, but they also would use their power to protect the union so that, for instance, when employers would try to hire non-IWW members, everyone in the union wore a button that was distributed each month if you paid your little monthly dues, which were very modest, to keep the union going. And then everyone on the waterfront could see who's with us and who's not. If the bosses tried to hire non-IWW members, and they very much wanted to and would often test, according to uh, sort of oral histories, right, they'd say, you should fire these other guys. They're not in local aid. And the boss might say, so screw you. And they'd wait a few hours. They'd do the work. And halfway through the shift, they might lift up all the cargo slings so that they're sort of in the middle of the air, cut the ropes, walk off the ship, declare a strike at that moment just for that one ship. And then the boss has a choice to make. They want to move that stuff now. And again, time is money. Or they don't. They either try to bust a union. And again, it comes down to power. The Wobblies very much understood that they were not friends with the boss and that the bosses hated them. And so it comes down to if we have our side organized, which is to say we can't be divided, which is to say we can't be racist or xenophobic or sexist, then we're strong enough, maybe. The IWW also never signed contracts because in many union contracts, there is a no-strike clause, including in my union contract. I'm in the American Federation of Teachers and my union, just like most unions, agree to not strike for the duration of the contract in exchange for certain gains and protections. The IWW said the greatest power of workers is to stop work. We never want to sacrifice the power to stop work. The benefit of having a contract is you might be able to breathe for a year or three years. If you don't have a contract, as you've chosen not to even ask for one, they had oral agreements, right? So they had a sort of agreements on wages per hour and certain products and whatnot. So they would always have to organize again. And educate. Because part of being a radical union is having members that understand the union's ideals. This time, this is also before radio, before TV, before the internet. So a lot of people would just hang out at the union hall with your peers. They would have social events. They also would have events where they'd host speakers from other branches of the IWW or other unions. Right? And so all the luminaries within the radical labor movement would have visited They'd talk about what was going on in other countries and other parts of the world. In 1921, when the Tulsa Race Massacre happened, Local 8 held an educational forum to talk about that. It's sort of amazing. According to a report in a magazine that came out of New York City's Harlem neighborhood called The Messenger, which was co-edited by A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen, Black Socialists in Harlem, there's this very detailed description of white and black members criticizing the Klan and more broadly racism and, and the race massacre. 
which they sort of saw through a class lens, meaning that why are white people killing black people? Black people are not the enemy in this way of thinking. The enemy are the bosses. So when white people are distracted, if you will, from the true enemy, the class enemy, that's a problem. And so we have to talk about it. According to The Messenger, there's this incredible anti-racist conversation happening June of 1921 in the Philadelphia Union Hall, which is sort of amazing for many reasons to think about. After George Floyd was killed, actually, there was a lot of protests, but probably most people didn't go to a meeting to talk about race relations. Well, Local 8 did. The great crime of their time, or one of them, they said, let's have a conversation about this. And it's a multiracial institution, so we're going to actually bring people of different backgrounds together, which is also unusual because many of us sort of self-segregate in our lives, for better or worse. And so that's really interesting. Owen, no politics. The IWW was focused on organizing enough workers for one big strike to topple the system, not voting for two parties that were both capitalist. Big Bill Haywood famously said, I've never read Marx, but I've got the marks of capitalism all over me. These are working class men and women. They identified as working class conscious and they identified their opponents as essentially their bosses. The first line of their preamble is employers and workers share nothing in common. It was a model of unionism that is unfamiliar to most of us nowadays because most unions aren't nearly as radical as the sort of union as the IWW was. And I should say the IWW had hundreds of thousands of members. This wasn't just a small union. The mainstream labor movement was bigger, always significantly bigger, but there were hundreds of thousands of American workers who were in this incredibly militant radical union and that commanded great respect from many people who appreciated their commitment as well as sort of great hate, especially from employers. If you go back to sort of this time and you read mainstream newspapers, Wobblies are constantly being disparaged. I should say the IWW still exists, but it's a fraction of its former membership and it's not nearly as influential as it was in the first 20 years of the 20th century. Talking about the radical militant equality promoted by the IWW and put into practice by Local 8 begs the question, radical compared to what? So now we're going to turn to the mainstream labor movement and the even bigger collection of unions that still exist to this day, the American Federation of Labor, and what mainstream labor movements looked like. The American Federation of Labor was more mainstream, which is to say that they generally accepted that capitalism was either couldn't be beaten or was good. They might believe, in fact, that the system works generally well. Every now and then, someone who's poor does become rich, which is to say the system works, right? They might believe that America is a great country. They might believe that it's better than many other places. They also generally believed in the mainstream ideologies of the country, which were white supremacy. They generally believed in patriarchy, which is to say that they were normal, right? Like, I mean, these were the mainstream values of the U.S. and many other countries, with some exceptions, of course. Um, I might be painting an overly cynical brush. The AFL wasn't trying to rock the boat and change the system. Their fight was for workers' rights, so higher wages and better working conditions. Relatively non-threatening compared to the IWW, which was... Openly and very sort of loudly anti-capitalist, very openly and loudly critical of patriotism. All socialists say it, even though only some sort of practice it. Why should we go to war with other countries? Workers kill other workers on behalf of the elites in their societies. Being a radical threat to the system was definitely a big reason for Local 8's downfall. So now let's get to the external opposition and internal division that ended Local 8. 
World War I began in 1917. The United States declared war against Germany, although the war had begun in Europe in 1914. A lot of people were skeptical. The United States wasn't attacked. Why are we joining this war? Who's being asked to fight? Generally, as again, working class people are going to be sent to France in order to fight, which is to say to kill and maybe be killed. Why? So many leftists, including in the IWW, were very skeptical. Although generally they weren't openly anti-war, they were understandably suspicious. But after the United States declared war, the president, Woodrow Wilson, in the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Espionage Act that basically criminalized dissent, which is to say if you spoke out or wrote against the war or the draft, you could be punished for a federal crime. Subsequently, the Congress passed a second law called the Sedition Act. So almost immediately gives Wilson this tool in June of 1917, the Espionage Act, even before it's passed, the Bureau of Investigation, which later became known as the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which was already headed by a young man at that time named J. Edgar Hoover, started to survey Wobblies, including Ben Fletcher. Ben Fletcher was organizing in Norfolk in early 1917, was threatened with a lynching and sort of is smuggled out of Norfolk for Boston. He's thrown on a ship and he ends up spending months in Boston in, in 1917. So it's in Boston that the federal government finds him and starts spying on him. It's ironic that even though I'm highly critical of the government's actions toward the IWW, it's only because they kept really good records that we know about a lot of this. Now one can find this information out. It's no longer sort of a secret. And so Fletcher was indicted, as were uh, several hundred other Wobbly leaders across the country, and then arrested and then put on mass trial in Chicago, in the headquarters of the IWW in the spring and summer of 1918. After under 30 minutes, the jury comes back all hundred or so wobblies on trial, guilty on all five counts. And uh, Fletcher gets 10 years in federal prison and $30,000 fine. And all the wobblies on trial were given five to 20 year sentences and sent to Leavenworth almost immediately, which was the notorious federal prison at that time. Government repression, take off the leaders. It does actually weaken the union. The AFL is a rival union that often sort of plays along with the federal government saying, oh, we don't like the Wobblies either. Get rid of the Wobblies. We'll be happy to sort of represent Philadelphia dock workers, but in a much more mainstream fashion. Employers, of course, happy to collude with the federal government too in order to sort of either foment labor conflicts or lock out workers, which happened on several occasions after World War I. And so you have the government You have the local government, which is happy to provide police to beat strikers and to sort of make it harder for the union to sort of defend itself. You also have the emergence in the Soviet Union of communism, which is sort of another form of socialism. But the Wobblies were anti-capitalist and initially were very pro-Soviet, but it sort of quickly soured. Essentially, there was a split between the Wobblies and the communists over process and tactics, and the communists were rising. And so some leftists, including some lobbies, joined the communists. And then there's also racism and xenophobia. There's actually, after World War I, there's rising racism. It's harder for white and black people to trust each other in a society where white and black people are increasingly at odds, especially as white people engage in a series of mass violence against black people in cities across the country. And the Congress is passing laws after World War I that essentially drastically reduces immigration. And so xenophobia will increase. All these forces essentially make it so that Local 8 is destroyed in late 1922. And about four years, five years later, the AFL sort of comes to represent and to this day represents Philadelphia dock workers ever since. And so Local 8 maintained power almost a decade. Fletcher remained active in the IWW and was well known and respected as a speaker after Local 8's demise, although he never had as much success as he had when he was a leader 
and Local 8 in the 19-teens. So that was the end of radical unionism in Philadelphia among dock workers. But that's not the end of radical dock worker unionism, which is when we're getting to our second case. We're going to flip to the other coast of the country, San Francisco, to talk about another radical militant union that not only fought for workers' rights, but fought for social and racial equality and change. This one is the ILW, International Longshore and Warehouse Union, San Francisco. During the Great Depression, the 1930s, there is more militant worker activism, including strikes in the formation of new unions. This is a generation after sort of the heyday of the IWW, and there are still some wobblies around and their ideas. In the mid-30s, new unions are formed. Many of them form a federation that was sort of born out of a rift within the AFL, and that becomes known as the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. In the mid-50s, they'll merge into what now we call the AFL-CIO. One of the unions that emerged in the 30s was on the West Coast, representing dock workers from L.A. up to Washington State and beyond, including San Francisco, which at that time was the largest and most important port. It won't be until the 1970s that L.A. will surpass. And in San Francisco, it's a fascinating case. I always say to people who think they know San Francisco, if you don't know the centrality of the ILWU dock workers to why the Bay Area is so progressive, you don't actually know the Bay Area nearly as well as you think, because it still has a reputation as being very progressive, including on race and ethnicity. And I think that's partially deserved, but I think a lot of it has to do with this radical union. So the leader of the ILWU from its inception was an Australian immigrant by the name of Harry Bridges. He had moved to the U.S. in the early 20s, and he actually had joined the IWW in New Orleans when he was a sailor. He eventually made his home as a dock worker in San Francisco. I should note also Australia has a deep history of racism and xenophobia too, right? Especially its horrific treatment of Aborigines. Bridges didn't quite understand that when he lived there as a child, but he came to understand more his home place after he was introduced to the Wobblies and really arguably became anti-racist. He applied those concepts when he formed a new union out of what was called the Big Strike in 1934, where the entire West Coast, every port was shut down for the better part of two months by this renegade strike. And although at the beginning of the strike, Harry Bridges was not the leader of the San Francisco dock workers, let alone the coast, by the end of the strike, he was. And he will remain in power until he retires in the late 1970s. So Bridges supposedly said in the mid-30s, if there were two men left on the waterfront, I'd want one of them to be black. And so this union was also sort of, many of its founders were radical, of various different left-wing persuasions. Some were members of the Communist Party. Harry Bridges was not. I highlight that because not all socialists are necessarily anti-racist by any means. However, a disproportionate number of white socialists in American history have been more likely to be anti-racist compared to other white people. And so there's something to be said, in my opinion, about that. So we have to understand the left-wing politics of these workers who form this union that's also very radical they institute this thing which they call low man out, where they try to equalize the work. And so whoever shows up for a job at the union hall, and then similar to Local 8, they would be dispatched from the union. The employers would have to call up the union. They said, the low man out, whoever has the fewest amount of hours worked in that quarter of the year will get the first job opportunity, right? And so they can't mandate equal earnings because different people work a different amount of hours, but they were trying to mandate equal opportunity which arguably is what America believes in, not equality of wealth, but equality of opportunity. And so it's incredibly rare, which is probably even overstating it, 
that a union or any institution would try to equalize the earnings of the members. That's what they did. And although at that time there were very few African-Americans in the union or in the city, they also from their first strike said that we will not discriminate based on race. And so let me just highlight in the 30s, San Francisco's black population was 1%. Oakland's black population was 3%. It's only during World War II that we see a significant increase in the black population in the Bay Area because essentially the war, there was this huge inflation of jobs on the waterfront because literally it's the most important port. The war against Japan is largely being shipped out from the Bay Area. Troops and cargo and ships being built. 200,000 Americans worked building ships in the Bay Area alone. Women and men, black and white. Rosie the Riveter was a shipbuilder from the Bay Area. So thousands of African Americans find jobs on the waterfront. They happen to find themselves in a union that believes in equality. That is rare. There were other unions in the same time period who segregated black people into Jim Crow locals, tried to restrict their abilities to get certain types of jobs. Some unions were better than others, but some were pretty bad. But the LW and some other unions that were leftist in their orientation were pretty progressive in the 30s and 40s, which is why, of course, civil rights organizations like the NAACP, which initially were skeptical of the CIO, came to say, the CIO is about the best thing we got going. What do we want? We don't want to be poor. How do we get less poor? Well, Martin Luther King famously said later, unions are the first great anti-poverty program. If workers are strong enough, they can basically force employers to pay them more. And so the IWU had, again, like the IWW, sort of short and longer term vision here. They weren't expressly socialist. They weren't expressly anti-capitalist, even though some of their members were. But their policies were inclusive. Their policies were egalitarian. And in practice, that generally worked especially in the Bay Area, where there was enough commitment to it. Local 10 was incredibly progressive, and by the late 60s was majority Black. Like the IWW, the ILWU also had a wide range of successes and failures at recruiting and maintaining an interracial union. In Los Angeles, another local in the same union actually treated African Americans far worse. Up the coast in Seattle and Tacoma, there was hostility. In Portland, Oregon, there wasn't a single Black member of the LWU for decades. Other locals within the same union, despite the official union policy, were sometimes horrible, more often decent, but rarely awesome. Although, again, it's sort of what we see the spectrum. I mean, other locals were diverse, not necessarily in terms of African-Americans, right? And so in LA, a significant Mexican-American population and other Latinos were members, although there were some Blacks. They also organized in Hawaii, Hawaii is really the majority of the state population are of Asian descent. And so in various different parts of really the Pacific coast and uh, then up into Alaska, they also organized and had indigenous workers, Asian workers. Through the influx of black workers and active recruiting, Local 10 became a majority black union. During World War II, LW Local 10 became about a quarter black. It remained that way. But then in the 60s, essentially due to retirements and whatnot and Efforts by the union, they started to actively recruit working class black and brown people in the Bay Area on both sides of the Bay, East Bay and San Francisco, so that it wasn't random that it became an African-American majority by the late 60s. And Cleophus William, after moving from rural Arkansas during World War II and what sometimes is called the Second Great Migration, he became the first African-American elected to be the head of Local 10 in the late 1960s and was deeply respected really up and down the coast. He helped create a Free Angela rally at Local 10's Hall in San Francisco in 1971, shortly after she was arrested. 
This union, the LWU, became fierce fighters, both to improve their own lives, right? And dock workers ultimately became well-paid by the late 20th century, but also sort of often fought for racial quality in their workplaces. They also took a stand very clearly in favor of civil rights in electoral politics. They weren't anti-elections the way that the IWW was. They were very involved in electoral politics as much as they could and engaged in a lot of other interesting actions, both short and sort of longer, that are some significant evidence for support, not just for workplace activism, not just even for Black equality, but also for Mexican-Americans, for Indigenous people. This wasn't only just coming from the leadership, but also actually from within the ranks. So that's social movement unionism, the way that an interracial union like this wielded power both at the workplace, but also they used it to make larger statements about issues of social justice. Well, I'll give you three examples. When, for instance, in Birmingham in 1963, when the civil rights movement is sort of really sort of moving there and when Martin Luther King's in prison on Good Friday and writes his famous letter from Birmingham jail, Local 10 coordinated with black churches to sort of form the largest, what was then the largest civil rights demonstration in the Bay Area ever. And so in May of 1963, 20 to 30,000 people led by the LWU and many church leaders in the black community essentially create an event in solidarity with what civil rights activists are doing in Birmingham, which was fighting against racial segregation in the city of Birmingham, which now is less of a big deal city, but was actually a more important city than Atlanta or Charlotte in the 60s. Birmingham was the big industrial city in the southeast from the late 19th century into the 60s and 70s. Two. In late 1969, a pan-Indian group of young men and women occupied Alcatraz for 18 months to sort of raise awareness about discrimination against Native peoples. That's a really famous moment. Alcatraz is famous, of course, because it was this prison island that was no longer in use by the federal government because it was really expensive to operate because literally everything had to be shipped off and on the island, not just people, but food and water. It's a 12-acre rock. Nothing grows. It has no water. Well, an Indian member of ILW Local 10, who was named Joe Morris, he was a Blackfoot Indian from Montana originally, and his nickname was Indian Joe. Joe Morris secured an unused pier so that all the stuff, all the people who visited Alcatraz for those 18 months, all the stuff that was sent over to Alcatraz in order to sustain the dozens of people, the hundreds of people who sometimes occupied and lived on Alcatraz Island during the 18 months, happened because of that pier, right? It's this small, invisible aspect of the occupation. But without that, they would have had to have withdrawn because they didn't have food and water. And so they needed something in it. So it was with the support, the understanding, right, of this union that sort of wanted to support this effort. Three. To protest racial oppression in South Africa, for the system known as apartheid, which was more brutal than Jim Crow, really sort of a 20% white population deeply oppressed the 80% non-white population for centuries. And many African-Americans in Local 10, but also some white radicals in the 1960s and 70s were increasingly anti-apartheid, as were many other people around the world. What could these dock workers do about it? Well, on multiple occasions, they would refuse to unload cargo from South Africa to protest the politics of South Africa. 
So let's think about this. Dock workers are paid to load and unload cargo. They're not asked to think about what that cargo consists of. The idea that these workers would insert themselves into foreign policy, it's not unique, but it's very unusual. Some other sailors and dock workers that were anti-apartheid also engaged in similar actions in other ports around the world. So it wasn't only in San Francisco and Oakland, but it was predominantly black, but with active white support among a group that called themselves the Southern Africa Liberation Support Committee which Local 10 formally approved. So they created an internal committee of their own members to basically represent this issue, educate the members and others about, and then take action. Most famously in 1984, the height of the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa and worldwide, when a ship came in with South African cargo, they basically unloaded all the cargo that was not from South Africa. And then they walked off the ship and said, we're not going to unload the South African cargo. That was illegal, but they did it anyway. This had been planned in advance. So only people committed to that were dispatched to that ship. That also means they're not getting paid. They were taking money out of their families' mouths in order to protest against racism in South Africa, a place that none of them had ever been. For 11 days, this cargo stayed and it became this huge protest in San Francisco that became very influential in the Bay Area, including among students from UC Berkeley, who just a few months later started to create massive protests against apartheid on their campus in Berkeley across the Bay. Um, the climate justice movement has really sort of copied many of the tactics of the anti-apartheid movement at a global level. Divestment, which is another tactic of the climate justice movement, was used by the anti-apartheid movement. The LWU divested itself from corporations. So in their pension, they could say, we don't want to invest in any company that has dealings in South Africa, for example. And that became another arena in the global anti-apartheid movement, pressure corporations to basically take their money out. Those are examples of social justice unionism or social movement unionism, but they're also, the anti-apartheid is an example of sometimes what's called transnational activism, where it's easier to sort of say, I'm sympathetic to what's happening to black people in Minnesota. I live in Illinois. Well, how do I feel about black people in another country or people in another country that maybe I'll never meet? That's incredibly rare and to me, deeply impressive. I'm not the only one who feels that way. Actually, the people who became the leaders of this action were deeply respected within their union and outside of it. And in fact, the black man who led that action, Leo Robinson, who when he passed away in I think it was 2013, the South African government awarded him something called the Nelson Mandela Medal, which goes to a non-South African. Those are multiple examples of how the LWU has operated in different times and places for different issues. They share something in common. It seems like on some level we could say fight for equality, fight for justice, including very much so the fight for justice for people of color generally and black people specifically. And Local 10 and the ILWU have not stopped being vocal and visible on social justice issues. They've been all over things with George Floyd from shutting down the West Coast all of last Juneteenth to the letter they wrote in response to the trial verdict. And some of these actions tie us back to where we started, which is Mayday. Sadly, racist police killings is not a new phenomenon. So back in 2015, South Carolina, a black man was killed by a white police officer when he was running away from the cop. And then the cop planted a gun right on that black man, Walter Scott. Fortunately, another black man happened to catch this on video. And that white police officer was found guilty of murder. And before the fallout really occurred, a black woman named Stacy Rogers in Oakland in Local 10, and one of the few women, and some of her other 
friends in Local 10 create a stop work meeting. So like they, they refuse, basically, they have the ability to declare these sort of meetings, quote unquote, that you might call a strike, right? Because the effect is the same. You're not actually doing your job. And so on May Day, May 1st, 2015, they did a stop work action to protest the racist police killing of Walter Scott in South Carolina. They actually also shut down the port when Oscar Grant was killed on New Year's Eve in Oakland in 2009, I think it was, similar to this year when a police officer or a transit police officer claimed that he was pulling his taser but ended up pulling out his gun and killing a person who was handcuffed on the ground, Oscar Grant. That later was made into a movie called Fruitvale Station by Ryan Coogler, who later went on to make Black Panther. Ryan Coogler's uncle is a member, actually, of ILW Local 10, believe it or not, and so on multiple occasions on May Day, the LW has appreciated that it is considered International Workers' Day and therefore chosen not to work on that day, sometimes for a very expressly political reason, other times simply because they just want to take the day off. And so actually, there's a tradition unofficially within Local 10 that you don't work on May 1st. In other words, you don't report to the union hall to dispatch. It's sort of an unofficial strike. And They've been doing this for a number of years now. And I've heard through Clarence, uh, a friend of mine in Local 10, Ryan Cougar's uncle, that there is going to be an action on May Day this year. I don't know what that will be, but it will probably involve not working since that's the whole point of having a holiday is, <laughs> is to not work. Right. So that's all to say. Happy May Day. Happy May Day. Thanks for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And anyone who's listening, I thank you also for listening. Well, I'm definitely going to have to keep an eye on happenings in Chicago and San Francisco this May Day. We basically just took parts of three different books that Professor Cole has written, which are all linked in the show notes. And as always, don't forget to like and follow at We The Black People Pod on social media and share the show if you like the show. All power to all people, y'all. <laughs>